Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, and as always, I've got Andy with me, joining in from Austin. Andy, how's it going these days? What have you been up to? I'm I'm good, man. It's it's a it's a hectic time for our household. We we just like gave over the treasure trove of financial documents required to get a mortgage for our home that we're almost Sick. done building. Which were excited your social score, about. your yeah. birth certificate, your father's so, birth certificate, all a pint that. of blood, you know, just the standard uh, colonoscopy that you go through in order to get a loan. And then we went to uh, we had like our latest and greatest sonogram for the little guy yesterday, so we got to see new pictures of him, which is really surreal. Now he starts he's really starting to look like not just like a human, but like a human related to us, which is very right. surreal for sure. But other than that, it's been pretty good, man. I I was telling you a little bit before we got started about. A, uh, an incredibly infuriating scenario I got into recently. Oh, okay. So yeah, car incident, but a uh, bad driver incident. I want to hear the rest of it. Yeah. So Cassie uh, is the child of adoption and therefore her parents are very old and like many old people she was brought up to to only drive american so she's bought all american cars her entire life which uh is anyone not a that's, good thing anyone that's done that <laughs> will tell not. you that they spend a lot of time in the shop so my right. my beautiful wife has this chevy equinox that always has something wrong with it and this last week was no different there was a seized up tie bar it was like this ridiculous amount of money and had to spend a bunch of days in the shop so it always is I had to And they're chauffeur. the only ones who can fix it every single exactly. time. Exactly. Absolutely. No one else has these parts. They're not using OEM parts like every other Japanese car on the planet. So yeah, long story short, I had to chauffeur my wife to uh, a nail appointment. And on my way back to our, our crib, there is one of these junctions in Austin where there's like a red light to turn onto Mopac. And it is like one of those lights that stacks up like 500 cars deep. It's going to take like three or four cycles of green to get through the oh, light. Yeah. So we're all waiting. It is what it is. As we're going through this process, I see this white BMW X5 like come in at like 50 miles an hour, slam on the brakes, and at a like a very obtuse angle, like almost perpendicular to the lane, just like cut in between two cars. Like as one the car, the Tokyo like, Drift sound is playing. The dun, exactly, dun 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 dun, dun. It, dude. Exactly. So all <laughs> these people are laying on their horns because this lady, this person, almost caused a wreck. As they turn like straight into the lane, I just see a hand shoot out the driver's side window and a like full set of nails, like a brand new set of nails is on these hands and the middle finger flips everyone the bird. There's a sticker on the back of this brand new white X5 that says in like live, laugh, love script, you know, like target script. It says mom life. And then as we turn onto the highway, this woman throws like a half full Starbucks cup just out the window onto the highway it explodes all over the place and she just drives off at like 150 down the highway like it tumbles into the green belt basically yeah just like into our public water supply uh onto a a, like a probably like a family of baby otters who died from the chemicals that are in starbucks and like dude i was just i was i was texting you guys about it because i was just like i've never been so confident that a person sucked without meeting them like you just know this person is atrocious in all aspects of life there is no redeeming qualities to this human being (laughs) like their whole life is centered around like no i want to go a place so like everyone needs to shut the fuck up (laughs) like you're just like oh you suck if anybody that hasn't heard the louis ck skit where he talks about it's uh, not my it's not my favorite way it's not my favorite i want to go that way like they they need to listen to that Um, i quote it all the time to cassie i'm always like whenever someone like cuts across like five lanes to turn left instead of going up the block you're just like but no it's not my favorite way to go (laughs) 
you're like, yeah, we know God. Very true. I will say this. As people pointed out, there's probably a Karen out there that is like the best person in the world. That is like the yeah, sweetest Absolutely. Part, would never call the manager. There is probably some poor BMW driver out there that is like a saint. But until until we meet them... <laughs> Bro, I can't like, imagine said, what Germans feel like. When you said it was a BMW like. that cut everybody off, I was like, okay, oh, yeah. that, that, that... I can't imagine how Germans feel, you know? Because Germans take driving so seriously. Like, you can't have a cold when you drive on the yeah. Autobahn. Like, they take it super seriously. And so to have kind of their, like, marquee car brand associated with such shitheaded driving has got to just drive them nuts if they're aware of that stereotype at all i don't know if they are but like that is just it's it's the complete opposite of like bmws are designed from the ground up to be like very meticulous driving machines they're for people that know how to drive a car they're for like you know what i mean they're a high performance vehicle and they're used by like tri delts driving drunk home from sixth street on saturday at two in the morning as they're like plowing through traffic cones to get into the hov lane because there's no traffic over there like you're not wrong you're not wrong at all gosh it is just infuriating but and 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 the older i get the more i notice it i just absolutely becoming an old head driver although i'll say this in austin dude teslas are making a fucking power play bro they're red wedding in their way into the top spot for shithead drivers (laughs) like the number of times i get cut off by like a model x or a model s with like they all have custom license plates that say like go buy gas or like no gas or like electric or something as if everyone doesn't know what a fucking tesla is as if we all just woke up yesterday and are like oh what's that oh it doesn't take gas that's crazy in five years i fully expect bmws to be a a distant second to the tesla crowd i just love and i also love the idea that they're superior to you but they've only been superior to you for like six months or exactly absolutely they waited uh, they waited a year and a half on a waiting list and now have been superior to me for three months with their brand new paper plate tesla well speaking of superiority today we're going to talk quite a bit about the oscars aka the superior films and screenplays and whatnot of the best place to publicly assault someone for uh insulting your wife yeah and i've actually thought quite a bit about that so the way that i i want to kind of structure this episode if you don't mind if you want to humor me is we're going to be releasing this episode, you know, not the Monday after the Academy Awards. But this is going to be eight days after the Academy Awards. So all of the memes and whatnot are just everybody's going to have heard everything, right? So let's do this. Let's talk about Belfast, the the kind of true topic. Then we'll talk about the Academy Awards. And at the very end, we'll give our unfiltered, unadulterated, not asked for opinions about that. Because that is a fascinating topic in and of itself. It's going to be the it's going to be the story of this Academy Awards for years. So, it's impossible to avoid. For sure. We have to talk about it, but at the same time, I don't want to start the pod with just our Will Smith opinions. Agreed. Agreed. Let's talk about writing. So, Belfast. Man, it's interesting. We actually talked about which we were kind of going back and forth about whether we were going to dedicate this episode to Belfast or Dakota. We decided to do Belfast because it was the best original screenplay and I feel like that best represents um kind of what we want to do with this pod but also I, I honestly looked at the premises of the two and was like Belfast sounds sicker and Coda's strength is is divided not it's not only a great story but Coda is an incredibly powerful piece of work because it is like so much of it takes place in sign language it has this huge angle around the deaf community so much of that is tied right. to the performance on screen whereas Belfast is much more rooted in like the story that's being told and as a writing podcast Belfast is probably the like more writing intensive work out of the two not to say it right. take anything away from Coda it's supposed to be a masterpiece and I was incredibly moved uh, when they did the best supporting actor 
award and and homeboy won it i thought that was incredible homeboy as in the grandfather who's i need to pull up the cast real quick it's funny i didn't realize how big of a cast this was or how good of a cast this was you had i'm gonna need help with some of these names first of all judy dench was in it which i didn't realize judy i didn't dench realize that was judy I didn't dench at all grandmother i didn't know that was judy dench at all until i was like who played the grandmother because she's killing it and then i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's yeah of course and then jamie dornan was the father or as they call them paw throughout the film he was jamie awesome. dornan i he was great and the entire time i was like man this guy looks super familiar this is just a no-name actor who looks like brandon flower from the killers but it turns out that he was the guy from the 50 shades series that's where i knew him from um not that i've watched those movies but <laughs> i recognized him Man, I'm going to need help with some of these pronunciations. I, I, um, I, I kept saying Ciaran, but I, I do not know how to pronounce Irish names that are like in yeah. Celtic. So apol- but, so seriously, apologies, but yeah. Ciaran Hines. Carrie Hines or something. He, yeah. yeah he, something like- dude, he was probably my favorite part of this movie. He brought such grandpa and like warm grandpa energy to this role. And like, I fully believed that he was a grandfather after while watching this. I found myself just like smiling ear to ear after every scene that he was in. He was, he was awesome. like one of the most well-written grandfather grandfather figures that I've seen in a movie because he was kind of, A, he was a little bit on the periphery, B, he was extremely knowledgeable without being forceful, and he had like, ju- and he was like, always had a twinkle in his eye and was like, kind of, a, I wouldn't even say comic relief, but he was very much there to allow for Buddy, who was essentially the main character, the son, to be humored by. Like he was he was very um malleable. He could be the comic yeah. relief. He could be the, the 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 shoulder to cry on. He could be the person to talk to about advice. He was he was everything. And you're right, he he was great in this film. This uh this whole movie, man, when I first saw like the one line synopsis of this movie and saw that it was called Belfast. And I think this was very much intentional, like my thoughts immediately went to dark places. Like, I assume this was a really heavy movie. Um, it is set during the Troubles. Um, it, it does touch heavily on the sectarian conflict between kind of the Ulster, you know, loyalists and the Irish Catholic populations of Belfast uh, in Northern Ireland in the 60s. And this was at the very, it's set at the very beginning of the Troubles. This would continue and only ramp up and escalated violence until uh, the Good Friday Accords in the 90s. But when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be some just like insanely heavy, deep meditation on the two sides that are, you know, kind of involved in this conflict imperialism all these incredible and because this is one of i think for many people this represents like one of the most complicated it's up there with like israel palestine is like most complicated civil conflicts like within the borders of uh, of one area i think people in the west especially the idea of like religious conflict rising to the level of violence within christianity is seems like something from like 500 years ago or like a thousand years ago and so the idea that like in 1960 or 1980 even you know people were living with bombings, shootings, military crackdowns, paramilitary groups doing horrific things to each other's populations. Um, you know, the Irish Republican Army was a recognized terrorist group and still is, at least on in some of the factions that have that still exist today. And similarly, many of the Ulster Protestant groups that existed were incredibly violent, uh, responded in kind or initiated the violence that the IRA brought to the table. So, when I read about this movie and I saw it, I was like, I do find uh, that conflict very fascinating. Do I want to wade into something that's going to be that crazy? Because I, I know it's just going to be such a heavy, sad thing. 
And then you get into this movie and what you find is that, so this is by Kenneth Branagh, who's, uh, you know, a well-known, uh, Northern Irish director. He's been knighted. He's, uh, you know, this, but I would say that despite his like high profile work, I think in America, we know him best for stuff like Thor, Jack Ryan, shadow recruit. Well, he's and and honestly, I knew him more as a actor yeah yeah definitely definitely and he's kind of a if if you don't know who kenneth branagh is he very much get type got typecasted as a as a villain throughout a lot of his career he is the bad guy in tenet which i think a lot of people saw recently yeah he's in dunkirk he's in gilderoy lockhart and harry potter in the chamber of secrets he's in valkyrie uh he was the voice of miguel in the road to el dorado for you 90s kids that are out there doing your thing um, he's El also Dorado. like, dude, that, that, dude, those, those, those Elton John, uh, Disney classics just slap dude, so hard. The Tarzan, but, nobody asked for him to go that hard on the Tarzan soundtrack. Oh my God. He did it for so us. come out and see my world. Yeah, dude, he killed bone it. Bone hip, bone hip. Kenneth Branagh is, a. he's also like a, a classically trained Shakespearean actor, which obviously in the UK is this like time honored tradition. Early in his life, he did, you know, Henry V. He did Othello. He did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So he, he has like these incredible acting chops. He's also done like a lot of like the new age movies. And then he got into directing and has proven himself to be an incredible writer and director in that, in that sense too. But I would say that it's immediately obvious that Belfast is his most personal work. It's very, it's very clear to me that he was like very close to this. And the easiest way to understand this for an American audience is that if you were very young when 9-11 happened, you understand how a conflict like the war on terrorism or something like that can be ever present. It can affect every part of your life. It can be something you talk about all the time. And yet you really don't understand like the magnitude, gravity, or the specifics of what is happening. Like you don't really have a grasp on the context around which these events are taking place. And so that's kind of the underpinnings of this film is that the main, the focus of this movie is Buddy. He is like a second or third grade child who is born in an Ulster Protestant family in Belfast, Northern Ireland. They live on a mixed block, so they have Catholics on their block, they have Protestants on their block, and they are seeing the beginnings of sectarian violence come to their neighborhood. At the very beginning of this film, they've erected a barricade at the end of their street just so as to like try to have a break point for the violence in case these things begin to occur around them. And while that does resonate with Buddy... Because we see these conversations he has with his sister about like, oh my gosh, like, you know, how can you tell if someone's a Catholic? Because, you know, to them, it's just another Irishman. Like, the, everyone looks the right. same. You can't tell an Irishman or you can't tell a, a Catholic or a Protestant apart by look. At the same time, his life revolves around kid things. And this movie yep. is not, I think there's an important distinction to be made between a childish portrayal of a conflict and a child's viewpoint of a conflict. Because this doesn't shy away from showing the events. It just shows them from the perspective of a child who would like lack the nuance and context to understand them in the wider perspective of of the events that are occurring. I think that's embodied no better than in his in his uh school class in like the most brutal I was I don't know about you but I was so struck by like the brutal nature of the British school system where they read your test score out loud and they order the desks by uh, test score so like the smartest kid gets You're to sit no at kidding. the front and the dumbest kid has to sit at the back and so like Buddy's not very good at math but he really wants to do well so he can sit next to this really cute girl in his class uh, named Catherine and she's a Catholic Which you do you know that until the very end or did I just catch that at the very end? It's, it's kind of hinted at based on uh, a couple like 
tiny subtle cues like when you see her in her uh, house when he stands on the corner and looks into her house you see her father do the sign of the cross which only Catholics do in oh, the context of this that. but we don't it's not spoken aloud until the end do, do you feel equipped to go through this from a uh, chronological standpoint because you're usually pretty good about that and I've got some things to say about like the beginning of the film especially yeah we can do that for sure so I'll speak to the beginning and then I'll, I'll let you take over from there because honestly I just watched it and some of the events are kind of like still percolating and uh I, I really like the decision to in color show effectively drone shots and helicopter shots of Belfast yeah. with upbeat music. The use of color in general is really, really well done in this yeah. movie. So for, for people who haven't seen it, most of this movie is shot in black and white, which Brana described as giving him the opportunity to use infinite shades of gray, which I thought was such a great way to put it. Like that ties so closely into the theme of like showing this very hard line two-sided conflict and all the nuance that existed within it but then there are these moments of color splashed in one being when they're at that play they go to see the uh night before christmas uh ebenezer scrooge type beat and they're they're in the theater and you can see the color reflected in the grandma's glasses which is like a really interesting little touch of color throughout the movie so they use it very sparingly but it's used very effectively so the movie starts with these effectively it, 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 they could double as uh like tourism yeah. videos on YouTube or something. They were beautiful shots of Belfast and just the, the Irish countryside where it meets the coast and it's just gorgeous and it just makes you want to want to go to Belfast, right? And then it has this one shot where it shows a beautiful piece of political graffiti, if you will. It shows two men enjoying life together and one is kind of painted as a protestant and one's the catholic and then the camera pans up and as the camera pans over the wall what is over the wall is in black and white and it drops the date on you which i believe it said it was august of 1969 is that when the the it was like the summer of 1969 or 1968 i'm, I'm yeah 1969 because that's when the first like riots broke out that signaled right. the beginning of the troubles and so that date effectively august whatever 1969 which i don't have in front of me i believe is the 19th but i'm sure that is the date in which it kicked off and one thing that i that i found immediately about this film that plays into the first scene but also resonates throughout the rest of the film was that first shot where it, it pans up it shows the street that you learn that buddy lives on they're playing catch they're playing uh soccer there's you know mothers outside sweeping they're hosing down the street in front of their house things like that people shopping it felt like a studio set for an enclosed studio set for a old-timey film everything's in right. black and white it's enclosed the buildings almost look fake and perhaps they were but i think i, I think on purpose they went yeah. out of their way to to make it look like it was an enclosed set with very finite borders right that if you turn the corner and went too far you would not recognize that area or it would be a wall and as the film went on that facades started to slowly lift and you started to street see more streets you started to see them walk to school you started to see them go to different neighborhoods i think that was on purpose by the directing to paint a picture of here's the idyllic neighborhood that this nine-year-old boy is growing up in and he knows the world for exactly like this right and then as the events of the trouble start to play out he starts to see the world for what it is and things begin to expand. And not only does, as, as you pointed out, for, for different reasons, they start to show color throughout the film, but also they start to, the, the feeling that it's a Hollywood backdrop starts to fall apart a little bit. Um, I thought that was a really cool 
decision on the part Agreed. of Kenneth. Help me with his last name one more time. Brana. Brana. I'm gonna. I listened to like three or four different interviews. People said his name different ways, but Kenneth Branham. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's. I, I love the opening, and I I think that the whole movie uses so many interesting ways to focus the perspective on Buddy, in a, especially in a movie like this that takes place in such a consequential time, especially for this location. Um, you know, people that are born in Northern Ireland in the latter 20th century, like the troubles are an inescapable part of their identity. Anyone from like U2 to Kenneth Branagh himself are con- were constantly asked about the trouble in Northern Ireland. What do you do about yep. the Irish question? What do you think about the British response? Those kind of things. And so I think it was really important to Brandon that this story show that life was not a political documentary. It wasn't a constant state of military regimentality where they're just like constantly fighting and constantly thinking about the other side in terms of enemies. Um, And I think they did did that really effectively with the character of Billy Clanton, who is kind of the local sectarian rabble rouser and local criminal who is like constantly trying to intimidate his father into contributing to the cause and like give us money and like all that other stuff. He was really the antagonist of the story. Yeah. And, and I think he wanted to show that like the entire Irish population was at war with one another is, is a fallacy that like there were, there was a degree of like two groups of very ideologically driven people at war and then a whole bunch of people that use that as their opportunity to find meaning right someone like billy clanton who is a lifelong criminal who found that his skills and knack and willingness to do violence were suddenly in demand in an environment Mm -hmm. where violence was called for outside of that people were just trying to live their lives like the average person on the streets of belfast wasn't trying to end up on a on a mural about the conflict they wanted to feed their family live in their home play soccer in the street you know grow old with their grandparents and and do what everyone wants to do so yeah i listened to an interview with uh kenneth brant branagh Brand. Branda. Yeah. It's such an easy pronunciation, but I'm I'm making it significantly harder than it needs to be. It has um, so many letters that throw you off for sure. I'm gonna call him Kenny B. I'm sure he would appreciate it. <laughs> Kenny B. Kenny B is essentially kind of a memoir with fiction sprinkled into it. I, I thought it was a fictional tale when I got into it. It, it definitely so, is like fictional. Like I don't think any of these events specifically happened. I think it's just like heavily inspired by his own experiences growing up yeah. in Belfast. Because he grew up in this exact well, location. He grew up in this same kind of socioeconomic situation. He knew people exactly like this kind of situation. Yeah. I listened to an interview with him and he said, here's the things that were 100% true. He was there when the troubles began. His family relatively quickly moved out and moved to England. And during the difficulties, his escapisms were football, film, and a girl in his class name, I believe it was Catherine, right? In the in the film. So they used the same, he, the same name that was in the film was the same name for the girl in real life. And uh, Billy Clanton, I, I don't think that he represents any individual i think he represents any forces within the community that were trying to pull others into yeah agreed the 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 cause right and so in kenneth b's father's situation there could have been three of these clantons there could have been five there could have been ten 
the idea that there was a pull to try to get all these like basically you know essentially fighting age males to get involved in the conflict i think was probably what it was more alluding to which i think kind of speaks to you know the idea of silence is violence or what's much more common is like if you're with me you're against me i actually think they use that exact same line in the film it really kind of questions that right about whether or not you can be a neutral party in what people deem to be very important topics because to these to the people involved in this conversation like this was a very real important thing well and imagine if 9-11 had happened when we, at the same time when you know when we were in early elementary school and the perpetrators of it lived a mm -hmm. mile away i do definitely remember the fear the uncertainty the readiness the desire to like avenge those actions and both sides of this conflict did horrific things um there's a period of time where you know in the united kingdom they had to put cameras on almost every trash can near a school or important government God. building because the ira had bombed so everything you know the ulster defense league which was a, a a loyalist paramilitary group you know not officially associated with the british army but often armed and supported by the british army you know murdered people in cold blood shot women shot children and so there was not only were there people like clanton who are like trying to pull you in based on their own motives or their own ideologies but there's probably a community feel of like we have been attacked by our own neighbors who we showed you know love and care for in the past and this is how they repay us uh, i think the easiest way to understand it is like gang conflicts in in inner cities now where like the Crips and the Bloods or, you know, Southside, Northside gangs in Chicago, they have no reason to personally hate each other now, but it's just decades of, well, so-and-so killed my friend's dad, so we right. went back and we killed that person, and then because we killed that person, they came back and got revenge on us with X, and that just happened on a scale that's hard for us to understand. And again, it, I think it's so shocking because it did happen in a first-world Western liberal democracy with all the advantages of the modern world. This isn't some backwater banana republic that was, you know, right. having civil unrest. And the other half is that it was Christianity. And I think that exactly. is a huge part of it is like for sure. Western culture. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure this is a little outdated given it's, you know, to 2020s, but I would say that a vast majority of Americans are either agnostic, atheist, or Christian, right? Like that's a vast majority Definitely. of Americans, right? And yeah. so when you hear that a religion that is not yours is having conflicts within themselves, that's a little bit different to grasp than like your own religion. Yeah. Se, right? When Shiites and Sunnis are having conflict, you're like, okay, I don't really understand that, but okay. The idea that like the folks that went to St. Jude's would have like come down the road to First Allen Baptist and like wanted beef, that is so foreign and outside our understanding and again, I don't want to reduce it all down just to because it wasn't a purely religious conflict. This is a like an ethno religious right. political conflict that's that has all these different very complex layers about like the British deny you know, they took the Irish language, they took the Irish identity, they forced Protestantism upon them by the blade and many chants going back thousands of years. So it's this culmination of like everything that is your identity, your faith, your language, your heritage, who you who you consider yourself to be an Irishman rather than an Englishman, who who you consider to be your conqueror and your oppressor. All those things came to a head. It's much, I would say it's much more peaceful now and much more focused on political action. But every so often you still hear about referendum, you know, the idea of Ireland like separating from the United Kingdom or uniting Ireland, taking Northern Ireland out of the UK and adding it to 
uh, the Republic of Ireland, which exists now, uh, United Ireland is something they've worked for for a long time. So yeah, it's it's a crazy conflict, and I think it's probably impossible for us to ever fully grasp unless we'd lived through like the American civil war, I don't think we could really have understood like that, that level of sectarian strife. Um, but I, I love that this movie was able to approach it from an angle that I don't think you see very often. Cause there have been movies made about the troubles and there's been tons of documentaries made about the troubles and they focus on these incredibly tragic events, you know, bloody Sunday, you know, these incidents of, of mass casualty incidents via one side or the other, where people die and become martyrs. They become larger than just dead human beings. They become symbols of the oppression of the other side or the threat of the other side. And this movie really set out to show that more as a backdrop than as the the main focus. And I felt way more invested in, like throughout this movie, I found myself so much more invested in like what was going to happen between Buddy and Catherine or what was going to yeah. happen with his dad's job or what was going to happen with his grandparents than really caring about like what, what we would see as far as the troubles go, even though that, that should be like this ultimate, you know, piece of the, the equation. A hundred percent. And I think that was intentional. I think that was... That was how Kenneth B. wanted to go about the entire, like, building this, the structure of this story. Uh, you know, I, I listened to one of his interviews, and he said that he'd been thinking about this story since 1972. Right, he started writing this during the lockdowns in the U.S., and the lockdown, well, I guess with coronavirus in general, really made him think about the way he put it, the other lockdown that he lived in in his life, where literally his street, where he had... His family, his all of his extended family, and then Catholics and whatnot were, you know, confined in that one street, and literally the pavement of the road was pulled up to make barriers. So he was literally quarantined, you know, once as a nine-year-old and once as a, you know, an older man. And I think that this, again, this movie is structured much more as a memoir. Yeah. And so when I was thinking about what this film reminds me of, there's a few different things that come to mind. One is a film that I don't know if you've had a chance to see. I think it was shown to me in sometime in high school, but it's called Road and Glory. It's a movie that came out in the 80s. I've heard uh, this movie compared to that movie a bunch of times. Um, yeah, so I've Road and Glory it. is basically just about like a boy that's growing up in London in the uh, in the World War II. He's kind of living through the bombings, but he's also kind of like living his childhood. So there's a dichotomy of like him learning about life and love while also living through a war. The other movie that it kind of reminds me of from a structural standpoint, not necessarily a look and feel or vibe standpoint, you know, is a movie we've done on this podcast before, The Sandlot. Yeah, for sure. It is a child's memoir. And in child's memoir, we talked about this with The Sandlot, where it's like, you know, when you think about, when you go back and think about your childhood, you do not think of this happened and then this happened because that happened and this, you don't think about it that way. You think about, this time period and the things that happened during that time period. And Belfast is structured a little bit like that, where you have a clear beginning because he has a very strong memory where, as we talked about the beginning of this film, where he's playing in the street and all of a sudden the riot breaks out. But then after that, it is a kind of a collection of events that could have kind of, in a way could have happened in any order. There are events that a child would remember most prominently, right? Like they're right. not like, Oh, you know, the day we signed this accord between the, you know, these two sides, it's always like, Christmas, 
the day that I got the good grade on the math test, so I got to sit next to Catherine, that conversation I had with my grandpa at the hospital, the day that my dad told me we might have to move to England, like right, these are 100%. these are events that are monumental to a child and only to a child. Um, the one I think of that I think one that squares that so perfectly is where he's kind of cajoled by the older kids into looting the Catholic grocery store. And yes. they they loot this grocery store and one talk about just the most heartwarming shit ever that when this kid is given the opportunity to take anything that he wants, he gets laundry detergent for his mom, which is just the most heartwarming thing I've ever thought of in my life. Um, and what does he say when he shows up to the door when his he's mom like, is he's like, he's like, we're looting that we're looting the marketplace or the supermarket. She's like, you're what? And he's like, we're looting the supermarket. And he's like, I got you and laundry then, detergent. <laughs> Well, I I love that, like, he doesn't even say we got laundry detergent, but she basically is just, like, horrified, shows a look at him, and he just wide-eyed stares at her and is like, it's biological. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Referring to, like, what it says on the box. Which is exactly how you, like, take in advertisements when you're a kid. It's just, like, these, these yes. keywords. But I love that. The parts I keep going back to are the discussions between Buddy, the grandma, and the grandpa, like when they're together just alone. There's a scene where he's talking about kind of like breaking down the Catherine situation for them and like just like lamenting about how he can't, oh, I want to sit next to her and like I got too good of a grade on the test and now she's in the row behind me. Uh, So we're having to do this project on the moon. I love great little moments where he's like, I, you know, I didn't, I watched every single second of the moon landing when they were up there and I didn't get to see Michael Collins in the, the craft. He got, Michael Collins had to stay up in the, the land, in like the spacecraft that was circling the moon while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went down to the surface. And the idea that like as a little Irish kid, an Irish American would be like the guy that you're like quote unquote rooting for in the, (laughs) in the moon landing, I guess. You're like, where's Michael Collins at? And then his grandpa is giving him the like strategy on how to like get closer to the girl. He's like, well, you got two options. You can either like get a good grade and like stay up there and hope she stays up there or just go tell your teacher the moon's made of green cheese and maybe you'll get moved down a seat and you can sit next yeah, to her. So tell him the and, sky is green and then yeah. get back. Yeah. <laughs> and the grandma is like this uh, like heartwarming combination of like religious fundamentalism where she's like, she's reading some like super old school Christian Protestant newspaper where she's like, you know, the dark side of the moons where the devil hangs a shillelagh or She's like a little bit no nonsense, but she also is like, she's got a really great back and forth with the grandpa exactly. where you're just like, God, she's the best grandma ever. I love where she goes, did your heart ever skip a beat when he met? And he goes, oh, when you walked into a room, my heart danced a jig every time. I was just like, oh, that's such cute old people talk, dude. Like, just so innocent and folksy. And then, the, yeah. Later in the, the movie when they're talking about, like, did it? Did that really happen? Or did did your real heart really skip a beat? And he's like, yeah, that time you walked in with the brown leg stockings. The brown stockings, he, dude. I was like, yeah, and he, yeah, she's dog. like, oh, my God. And then, like. Or, oh, my Lord, and just, like, puts her head in her hands and just thinking, like, gosh, it's, to us, it's such an innocent comment. But for, like, a grandparent in the 1960s, that's, like, that's probably just, like, saying well, the most grotesque they're, thing they're, about, They're, like, 70 know. years old. It's 1960. Like, these are people right. that were born in, like, 1890. So, like, to them, yeah. like, to, like, comment on a woman's stockings, that's some risque shit for sure. I saw um, her ankle, though. And then, uh, dude, I, I loved the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang scene for so many reasons. One being that, like, oh, when I was yes. a little kid, my mom, before, like, Blockbuster and shit was really, like, a big part of our lives, in the early 90s, my family probably didn't have the money to go rent. Like, my parents had me super young, so we were, like, broke as fuck. 
and my mom would take me to the Denver Public Library all the time, and they would have all these VHS tapes of these old classic movies, and I fell in love with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, like all those old 1960s Technicolor like cartoons slash live action British yeah, movies like, like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And to see, so first of all, I sang along the whole time to the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we love you near, far, in a motor car. So tight. So I remember that. That was great. And then to Watch see them- in third grade in Miss Fandrick's class. Shout to out to see Ms. them Fandrick. in the theater. And when the car goes over the cliff, everyone in the theater is like, it's so it's the graphics are great. They're like having an avatar experience to this like like whoa and they're like all like bending over in their seat and they're like at the car flies and they're all like beaming ear to ear singing. I was like, man, can I make a time, statement about dude. that? Yeah, please. Dude, okay, so here here was my thought when I watched that scene was I've got a again, this is a very like artsy take that could be totally off, but the way that I took that scene was this movie is clearly whether whether or not Buddy is in the scene directly or not, this movie is from Buddy's perspective, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, I think we kind of agree on that. Like, from the black and white stuff and things, like, I view that as, like, Buddy in that moment was either directly leaned over or, like, thought it was that crazy that he, like, leaned over in his chair. If you remember the comment that he made to his grandmother where yeah, he was he, like, there's a, there's a scene where they fall off a cliff and it makes you want to fall out of her chair. And then the grandma rolls her eyes and is like, oh, uh, like, oh, is that really what they're coming out with these days? Which hey, is such a cute old grandma thing. Like the idea that like a car going off a cliff is her being like, oh my gosh, they, they're well, going too far these days. She, she goes, she, she follows it up with, uh, if, if God wanted flying cars, he would have given them blinking wings. You're just like, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, like when her when his whole family leans forward during that scene, but if you notice, nobody else in the theater does anything. Yeah, and so yeah, it, maybe it was like showing that like because this family has children with them, they're playing along. Again, this is this has to be a directorial cue. The director in real life has to tell the audience, like the extras, what to do and the right, actors what course. to do. So whether or not my theory is right or wrong, there has to be some intentionality here. But the way that I took it was the child remembers, oh, this movie was so crazy. Everybody was doing it back then. Everybody was right. leaning forward in their chair. And that's really just him. I almost... Right. It was just him or like maybe he didn't even lean forward himself, but that's kind of how he remembers it. But I kind of took it as a... Arti- like not an artistic liberty, but like a POV liberty, if you will. Yeah, of course. I, I think I agree with you there. I think the other important part of that scene is that um, one of the things Brandon said was that the, the two things about shooting the film in black and white that made him choose that was that one, again, it allowed him to, to utilize infinite shades of gray, which ties into this theme. And two, uh, he said life was very much black and white back then. Like all the media you saw was in black and white. Like that was like the nature of a lot of what you saw. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was uh, ahead of its time. It was it was a huge deal because it was in color. Like that was a big deal about yeah. that movie. And so to me, I, I took from it that like all these events are like big events for a child, right? Like so in a time when there were like bombs going off, he's remembering like, you know what the biggest deal of that summer was? They're like, uh, the giant riot. No, dude. I went and saw Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and that shit was in color. It was wild as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, like to him, that was nuts. And it so he's lit. like, 
it's burned into his brain as this like colorful magical experience in this theater with his family especially because this is a time when like it, it doesn't seem like they go to the movies that much and so like going to the movies yeah. was a huge deal it was a huge deal my dad's yeah. gonna come back next weekend and we're gonna go to the movies and it's gonna be lit and they're not even like the cousins might come next weekend he's like no we're going to the movies damn it which yeah it's totally relatable as a that, kid or even as an adult like, one thing that made me sad was that like and I know this was just so much more common back then was just that like because generations of families all lived in like the same street, maybe in the same house, and then you add to that this whole conflict that's going on, and so people don't want to give up territory, right? Like they don't want to be like, well, then all the Protestants will leave. And so there's this this gravity to Belfast for them where they don't want to abandon this place that they view as their own that's in conflict, right? You don't, you feel like that could be bad. And there's a scene, we talked about this a little bit today in our group chat where, you know, the dad comes to him and is like, look, like we have opportunities. Like they'll, they'll pay for us to move over to Sydney, to move over to Vancouver, all these places that are still in the British empire at this point. And even just over, you know, over into England where there's no, you know, there's no terrorism and stuff like that. And the son and the grandparents and the mom are all like, Oh, you know, no way. How could we leave? And I just, I felt for both them and, and for the dad because I know the dad just wanted his family to be safe and taken care of and so he had this opportunity to like knock all those out with one fell swoop right like if you can just get them all to move they'll live this very safe like financially secure life he won't have to worry about these riots he won't have to worry about the Billy Clantons of the world rolling around with handguns like they don't have to fly every weekend or every other weekend exactly all that sucks Um, my shallow ass was like Sydney, Vancouver, those cities are tight. You should move. <laughs> yeah, was yeah. not I mean, ironic on my part at all. I was just like, Sydney's awesome. It's well, and, and and that shows you like how much we've changed as a culture. That like you know, you and I both know people professionally that were like, yeah, I got a job offer in Hong Kong. You know what I mean? Like that's just way more normalized now than it was back then. Where I, you know, I and and especially in their situation again, like between both the the civil unrest and the their grandparents who like couldn't leave like his mom and dad lived there and they weren't going to leave Belfast and so they were really like torn between this like safety and stability that they had sought for themselves but also like leaving behind the people they cared about the most which is very difficult we've talked a lot about kind of just the back and forth the nature of the characters and what they were going through as well as the beginning of the film but do you uh maybe just want to start from maybe like act two and kind of go from there yeah so we've already talked a little bit about you know this is the story of Buddy who's uh you know, a, the son of a working class Protestant family in Belfast, right at the beginning of the Troubles in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Um, he's got a dad who works uh, this kind of two weeks on, you know, two weeks off job uh, in construction over in England, and his mom stays home with them. They're in a bunch of debt. And you find out about the debt in passing through Buddy's perspective, right? Just like him eavesdropping. Again, ex- exactly how a, a, a child would find out about that in a family. Like, your, your dad doesn't sit you down when you're nine and be like, you know, we owe the IRS or whatever. Like, this is all right. very much like listening at the at the staircase. L- um, like, when you were in Denver, you didn't realize that, oh, this is the reason we're going to the library because we can't afford to go to Blockbuster or exactly. whatnot, right? Like, no, just, for sure. It's just life for you, that, you know? And, and it and it didn't seem like a bad thing. You know what I mean? I was like, tight. They got shitty, right. shitty, bang, bang. This shit slaps. So... Um, but then when you got older, you were like, my parents were such losers. Dude, broke boys, dude. I made fun of them constantly after that. So they live on this street where uh, there's a barricade that's been set up. 
And right at the beginning here, uh, Buddy goes to church and the minister delivers this incredibly harsh, like, fork in the road speech. You can already see kind of the sectarian conflict seeping into the local religious culture where, like, even the local ministers are starting to be like, you know, hey, there's them and there's us. There's the people that are going to hell and there's the people that aren't. We're God's chosen church and people that practice a different way or not. And this kind of clashes immediately because at this point, Buddy begins to have this infatuation with this high-achieving Catholic girl that's in his class, Catherine. He finds her really cute in the way that little kids do. It doesn't go beyond any of that. He just thinks it's really cool that she's smart and she's really pretty. She's pretty hair. So at the same time, we also see that uh, his dad is being pressed by this Billy Clanton character we've talked a little bit about, who's basically demanding, like, look, you need to be involved in the cause. Like, if you're not helping us, then you are actively harming the cause by not being involved, by sidelining yourselves, and by sending the message to other people that it's okay to be sidelined. And in his uh, approach to Buddy's dad, he's also pressing Buddy. Like, whenever he sees Buddy, he makes comments, like, I'm going to see your da soon. Like, it's pretty scary for a little kid, for sure. Through all this second act, he's spending a lot of time with his grandparents because, again, his dad's out of town. His mom needs to work, too, and so he spends a lot of time with his grandparents, and that's where you have these really cute scenes where his grandparents are kind of trying to guide him through the process of maybe, like, wooing this this young girl in his class. It, this kind of culminates at Christmas where they there's this awesome scene where they get a bunch of cool toys. They're, the soundtrack to this movie is awesome. It's, all the music was done by Van Morrison, who's a Belfast native. Was it all the music? Or literally he, all the music? I don't think it's all like every song, but the music, but like, but he did the score. Like he, the it's like yeah. this. The movie says like music by Van Morrison is how it's yeah. credited. So and like seventy five percent of the songs are Van Morrison. This movie made me want to listen to like Van Morrison's sixties light rock. Like yeah, I was, I was just like sign me up for that, dude. Especially that like old U two Van Morrison, like that that Northern Irish sound got really big yeah. for a while, and it, and it had a moment, and rightly so. It's really good. So. Webb's been playing one of those in his car a lot lately. I forget which one, but there was a there was a song. I was like, God, there's that song that Webb plays like every time I get yeah. in the golf cart with him. Well, Van Morrison's super huge, so it totally makes sense. But <laughs> there's that co- niche artist that Webb found, Van Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> you guys probably haven't heard of him. Uh, kind of underground, Van Morrison. So this all culminates at Christmas. It shows them, like, there's great music playing, and it shows them getting all these toys. He gets, like, a Buck Rogers, like, sci-fi outfit, little, like, like space marine outfit with a little laser gun, and he gets a James Bond, Aston Martin, like, die-cast model, which, like, that must have yeah. slapped so hard in 1968. That must have been the coolest shit in the world to a little kid. And his parents, like, have kind of demarked Christmas as when they're going to make a decision on... Uh, Buddy's dad has been offered this permanent position in England. Are they going to move the family over there? It comes with a house. And they kind of put this to Buddy. Like, what would you think about moving to England? You know, you'd have a little garden, a wee garden to play football in, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He throws a huge temper tantrum because, like, he doesn't want to leave his mo- his grandma and grandpa. His grandpa's in the hospital. He doesn't want to leave Catherine. He doesn't want to leave Catherine. One. That's, like, the big one, obviously. And then right after this, the, the violence escalates. And because earlier, we saw this incident earlier where... Uh, Buddy was like kind of cajoled into robbing a sweet shop, like a chocolate shop, with this group of local Protestant youths. And the cops came to his house, and he did not rat out anyone. And because he didn't rat them out, they're like, "Okay, cool, you're you're tight, you're coming with us." He's like, "Where are we going?" And this is where they loot this Catholic grocery store. And he steals with the with the whole detergent thing that we talked right, about. Right, the biological detergent. His mom is furious. She marches him back down in the middle of a riot. Marches him back down to where all the people are being looted, and makes him. She wants to make him give back 
the detergent. But what a what a wamba. Oh, no kidding, dude. She was not about to have that shit. But while they're kind of in that whole situation going on, Billy appears and he takes them hostage in order to facilitate his own escape. So he's like kind of cornered by the cops and he grabs these two people and he's like, you know, no, I'm going to use you guys to get out of here because I'm kind of known as a rabble rouser. They're going to try to take me. Sure. And, um, and that was like the first time in the whole film where I felt like Billy really beca- went from like ideological antagonist to like villain. And, yeah, he was a shit. I mean? That's where like, you, that's where you see his true colors. He's like a, a selfish yeah. prick. Like, yeah. Um, and so the the dad shows up uh, as well as like some local British army troops, and uh, they're there to end the riot. There's this big stand standoff, and it looks like I really thought in this moment that Billy was going to shoot the dad. Like, I thought Pa was going to catch yeah. one because you keep seeing yep. Billy. It flashed, he's got a handgun, he's got a Browning automatic tucked into his back. You're like, oh my God, he levels one of his home, one of Pa's homeboys, which this shows you like how fucking cool locally the dad is that like one of his homies flips him a brick, like just throw, tosses him a brick. It was, like, it was the oldest son. Oh yeah, it's Will, it's Will. So Will tosses yeah, yeah. him a brick, like, all right, dude, go to work with this brick. The dude just Cliff Lee's that shit right into his face. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, he does not end up, luckily the cops, like, get rid of him. And, of course, while he's being taken away, he's like, you know, I'm going to get you, blah, blah, blah. So that at this point, they know that this is, like, no longer safe. And this is kind of the moment where they decide, like, it doesn't matter what anyone else wants. Like, we're not safe in Belfast. We're getting out of here. We're moving to England. Um, this is yeah. kind of on top of the fact that we've seen Pa, like the grandpa, in the hospital the whole time. He has like lung issues. He was he too worked a job in England, traveling back and forth. But he was a coal miner. So yeah, which they alluded to a lot. Like, hey, you don't like the grandma was like, hey, you're not gonna want to be a coal miner, right? And he's like, to Buddy, and he was like, nah, I don't know yeah. about that. And so he's got like bad black lung problems, like coal miners tend yeah. to do. Sad. Uh, and he passes away, and so without like the dad to like kind of keep him there. Uh, the son, being uh, Buddy's dad, kind of gathers up the family and they decide that they're going to move on. And there's this kind of culminating conversation between Buddy and his dad uh, about Catherine because he has to say fair, he has to say goodbye to her. And he tells his dad he's like really he kind of laments the fact that uh, he never got to pursue a future with her. And also kind of asks his dad like, you know, would that have been okay even though she's Catholic? And this is where his father reinforces again what a good person he is by being like, you know, if she's a respectful person and you're a respectful person and you know she's fair and respectful then she's always welcome in our house any day of the week and then his dad kind of turns it lighthearted and makes this comment where he's like i guess that means you and me will have to start going to confession and they kind of both look at you like oh no we'd be in huge trouble if we <laughs> yeah yeah like, we're no, troublemakers we're you know like oh that's yeah. great so that was really great the, w- one thing that i thought was a, a tiny detail about that was you know buddy shows up to her door and it's throughout the film I don't know if Catherine and Buddy ever talk to each other. He just kind of sees just, her. Just once. They they talk away. about the, the science project. He asks her like yeah. about if she's going to do the science project, and she asks him, do you want to do it with me? And he's like, uh, yeah. yeah. So they, they talk, and when Buddy's going away, he gives her a gift, and he obviously shows up to the door saying that he's leaving and whatnot. But there's very few words exchanged. But Catherine has also bought him a gift, right? Catherine knows he's leaving and whether or not that was shown off screen, like Buddy said he's leaving or the parents kind of got together. But I just thought that was a really cool touch. Like Catherine also got him a gift and wasn't blindsided. Like I just, maybe this is my adult's perspective speaking, but I took that as the adults got together despite the Protestant Catholic thing and said, Hey, this is, or or at the very minimum, like we're close enough to where like, 
they were aware of the other one's movements. Like they knew that the other family was moving and they knew that they were good people. And so they were like, Hey, we know that this kid has a crush on you. He's a good kid, even though he's from technically the other team, like he's a good guy, which is, is heartwarming. And so there's this kind of cult, like the final scene of this movie is the family gets on the bus, which is going to take them to the airport to go to England. And we're left with Judy Dench, the grandmother, the grandmother. And she is like, probably 50 feet away and she's kind of having conversation with herself but it's kind of lines directed at her son and she's basically like i love you you know go now and don't look back i love you son and then the bus pulls away and she's like and it's the only truly heartbreaking piece of this equation is that she's left there alone her her life partner who we have watched be like the grandma and the grandpa have just like the most like ultimate goals relationship like that's what any married couple will tell you like the growing old together thing is like such a huge piece of the equation. And so like to what, to see them be like exactly what every old married couple hopes to be this, like still in love, like still laughing at each other's jokes, still so in love with each other despite all these years. And then she loses her life partner and then her, the rest of her family flees and she knows they have to because of what's going on and she can't go with them and she knows they're making the right decision but it's still heartbreaking to see that she's going to be stuck in what, sure. what will become a war zone for the rest of her life is horrifying yeah yeah and then the the you know the troubles would go on for roughly 30 years i don't have the exact years in front of me but they, yeah it is they, it's they, exactly they 30 they, years good friday of 1999 yeah. it's an interesting point you bring up because when i was watching the movie i texted you and said this movie, strangely enough, like I'm not saying that I want a want a family at this exact moment, but this movie does a good job of showing you the beauty of having a family, right? Yeah, like, the purity. The of mother it. and the father in this movie do such a good job, and the kids are so pure, and they have such fun together despite all the trouble going on around them, and it just kind of shows you that, like, despite all the craziness happening in our current society, right? Like politically, you know geopolitically i won't get into everything you can take what i you know you can take what you want out of that comment but despite everything going on like starting a family having kids that are so innocent like is beautiful is a beautiful thing but then you see the the movie kind of ends with you know judy dench's perspective or the grandma's perspective like you can have your beautiful life partner and your beautiful children but like you know you could kind of plan this fairy tale ending but at the end of the day you could end up alone you know what yeah. i mean like that's a reality and it kind of highlights I think that was an intentional point made, you know, like he said this at the, you know, the very end of the movie ends with like, this is for the people that left. This is for the people that stayed. And these are the people that we lost along the way. Um, the words that pop up on the screen. I think that that just kind of plays into it that like you can have the perfect, nu- perfect nucleus or you can, or you can lose people along the way. But at the end of the day, that's life. And yeah, I know that's a very general statement, but it, w- it was beautiful, man. Again, I came out of it. It, it warmed my heart in so many ways. The very end was, was a little tragic because I, I did love the grandma and I was sad to see her saddled with that loneliness. But it was such a beautiful movie. And, you know, I think it's it's very tempting, especially now, to make movies that, that highlight the, the bad parts of, of the world. And, and I'm not saying those aren't important. Like, some things do need light shed on them. And movies are an incredibly powerful medium through which to spread, to shed light on issues that need light shed on them but every once in a while as a palate cleanser for all of us i think it's important to see a movie that shows the triumph of the human spirit and uh the triumph of love even in the face of of tremendous hatred and tremendous tragedy and tremendous violence and so to have a movie set in uh a time and place that i think if you asked any random person like hey belfast in the 60s and 70s 
like the instant reaction of anyone who's knowledgeable is gonna be like, oh, like a war zone, like it's Budapest, like yeah. it's like straight up like yeah, exactly. you know, bombings and shootings and paramilitary activity and the oh, British put like Kuwait in two thousand ten, right? Like, all yeah. right, sick. Sign me up. Um, and and instead for this movie to be more about like hey even in the midst of just like the the worst possible stuff going on like you know the human spirit is incredibly adaptable and there's still a kid that you know they remember those days as the best days of their life like the the troubles might have been the golden years for somebody and for this kid yeah. they partly were and i thought that that was beautiful so yeah, man, I loved it. I, I'm going to have to see Coda to render whether or not I think that it, you know, who I thought was, which one was the better movie. I came away from this being like, man, I'm, I'm, my immediate reaction is this should have been best picture. Cause I was just like, this was awesome. I loved it from, from beginning to end. We talked a little bit about perspective of Buddy. Like generally this POV of this film is about Buddy. And one thing that I, I wanted to see before I get into my overall thoughts, I wanted to talk to you about, um, whether or not you agree with this from a dialogue perspective, any time that there was any, I don't want to say light dialogue, but like simplistic dialogue, it was always when Buddy was around. And any time that adults were talking to Buddy or Buddy was talking to other people, it was very to-the-point dialogue. Catherine doesn't like me. What should I do? You should try to sit next to her, blah, blah, blah. But anytime it was two adults talking and Buddy was not in the room, it was almost Shakespearean, right? Like you had some scenes where it was, Pa and Billy Claxton talking or Billy Clanton talking and it was almost like Shakespearean in the in the words they were using in the in the lines they were using where it was very much ideologues talking to each other about these very heavy-handed things and and even when you had Ma and Pa talking about like their finances or the moving situation I felt as if things were moving a bit a bit slower and the words that were being used and the dialogue was a bit heavier and then the moment that our main character buddy intervened and started listening the words became a little bit more for his understanding and i took that as we are again billy's point of view and the dialogue is playing to that where anytime buddy's around he can understand what's going on you and i as the audience can understand what's going on but the moment that he leaves the room and it's two adults talking they almost went out of their way to talk in a more shakespearean dialogue i don't know if you captured that but i did notice a little bit that i felt like Adults in this movie are portrayed in in a way that I think can be understood from the perspective of a child that like adults are kind of these larger than life figures. And so when there's conflict between two adults, that almost seems like Clash of the Titans, like conflict beyond like the, the power of which is hard for you to grasp when you're a child. You're like, if my dad fights someone. Oh my gosh, like the world might end. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see where you're coming from on that. It didn't bother me very much. I, I felt like so much of the dialogue was done so oh, well. Oh, and I wasn't saying that it bothered me. I was just saying that it was like, I was saying it was a good touch, if anything. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. The dialogue that stuck with me the most, grandpa, grandma, buddy dialogue, that's the dialogue I'm going to yes. remember the most from the, that's probably because, if I had to guess, it'd be because Kenneth Branagh has like some very crystallized memories of discussions with older people in his family from that period of his life. And so he was able to relay those in like a ton of detail. You know, I think maybe some of some of what we're identifying here is uh, dialogue that is based on stuff that he really had discussions about as a kid and dialogue that he had to write for the plot, right? To like move, to like connect the tissue of this, this narrative versus dialogue that he set when he sat down to make this movie. He was like, this, this conversation's for sure going to be in it. Because so I remember having this conversation and it was really impactful, that kind of thing. 
what do you think this movie did really well from a, a technical perspective that I think warrants it being labeled the best original screenplay of 2021? What do you think? I think it more than maybe any other, and again, haven't seen Coda, so it's hard for me to, right. I, that could be just But that was, well. that was best adapted screenplay, so it, it's kind of, it's on the same playing field, but it's it's not measured directly against it. I, I think that there is just something that comes with a deeply personal, familiar story that an audience can, can pick up on. Like, this was so grounded in reality, so grounded in someone's real life events, you felt like you were witnessing the real events through the eyes of someone who was there. And that has an ability to connect with people on a human level that I think is hard to replicate when you're doing anything else it's hard you can't no matter how good dune was it wasn't going to connect with people on the level that belfast did um yep and i loved dune and i would have been okay with dune winning best picture um but well best adapted screenplay anyway right or yeah yeah best best picture and i which i think it should have still but continue well, actually, uh, I haven't seen Coda, so I don't know. Yeah, what I'm again, saying. Coda could be so rad, dude. It looked <laughs> and it looked awesome. Like it's we, just, I just haven't seen it. So we need uh, to watch it. We're we are such uneducated swine. Like, what are we doing? We need to I watch. S- that. What Come sucks on. is I saw so many movies except for Coda on this list. I saw Dune. I right. saw Belfast. I saw Power of the Dog. I saw Licorice Pizza, which I loved. I saw I saw Slappy Drive Pappy My Car. Rampart. Drive My Car, which won Best International Film, which was incredible. Yeah. Like so many good movies this year. I can't believe Nightmare Alley was on this list. I like watched the first ten minutes of that without knowing anything about it. I really thought that was like a direct to Netflix movie. Yeah. I was like, what's going on here? So, but overall, man, like this movie is a nine for me. Like maybe it's just because I'm like, on the very edge of, of fatherhood, and so I'm like in that that headspace where like that kind of movie just hits me right in a very particular emotional place. But again, it just like it had me beaming from ear to ear. Like so many points of this film. I think it has so much to say about such a complicated place and time from a perspective we'd never seen before and a perspective that's valuable because it's someone who is actually there. Right. You know, I'm going to I'm going to disagree a little bit. I think what left me lacking is you were one of my beta readers. So you know my my novel work. You know that I'm very character driven, like characters, like what their wants, needs, skeletons in the closet, desires, goals like that is really strong to me. Where, where are characters going before, during, and after the story? That is crazy important to me. And I understand there's a time and place for linear character arcs. I just felt like there was a huge hole in this screenplay for something greater than a linear character arc, particularly from Buddy, but also from the father. That, like, they might learn from some of the mistakes they made early on that they might grow as people and maybe that maybe buddy would take a chance with Catherine. maybe the father would understand that he's left his family for too long and that would become a struggle i understand that like that might lead to potentially more fictionalization than kenny b wanted in the story so maybe i'm treading on something that kenny b didn't directly want with his story but the way that i see it is look this was an hour and 30 minute long movie. Kind of like when we talked about Windfall. Windfall was an hour and 30 minutes, but felt like that story could have been told in an hour and 30 minutes, right? This was an hour and 30 minute long story that felt like it should have taken two hours. Or more importantly, this felt like if there was more characterization and more of an arc to it, it could have been like the be- like one of the best novels that I've ever read, right? Like, I feel like they had... they. They had something that was so perfect, but it was slightly underdeveloped. And yeah, um, I, I'm sure there no. was kind of a, a, a struggle there of like 
when you're trying to tell a story from a child's perspective, heavily centered on a child's perspective, how much, yep. how, like, if you show too much development, if you show too much insight into someone, if you show too much of that, when do you depart from that child's perspective? Because, like, a nine year old yep. cannot tell when someone has matured, cannot tell when someone, like, my dad had me when he was 23 years old. When I was like nine years old, my dad was 30. I could not tell you the difference between my dad at 30 and my dad at 40 as far as like what kind of human he was. You know what I mean? But like now that I'm 30, I'm coming up on 33, I can tell you that he grew a ton and changed a ton between like 23 and 33. But, you know, I wasn't aware Mm -hmm. of that. So I understand it. I I agree with you. I think that like you could have added more of that and made this like a, a true masterpiece at the same time I can understand why you def- like they skewed more towards the like keep it simple keep it what would a child see looking through a child's eyes what would they understand about the people around them and and that might explain some of the shallow the kind of the shallow nature of the character's actions the character's motivations the character's development but I agree with you but at the heart of it, yeah you you and I view this for through two different lenses like you view this as a borderline I don't want to say the term masterpiece but like you view that as like upper echelons film I view this as you know what after all the hype I heard about it after the fact that it won best original screenplay I walked away being like this was a really good film and one that I would recommend but I do not view this as anywhere near either of those i i don't want to take too much away from the screenplay because the dialogue and we didn't get too much into it i literally pulled up a tab that was like best lines because there's so many good lines in this film yeah, like it's so good, it's so dude, good. The, the idea that like they're they're, they're sitting through gg bang bang and the dad is like this is educational and the the mom is like yeah raquel welch is really educational yeah i love like, that and there's, there's I so love many that. good lines Again, as a line junkie, I love dialogue, but I love characters more. And I just felt like there was something missing from the characters. That's right? fair. That's totally fair. Um, anyways, uh, I, I understand your, your viewpoint. I think you understand my viewpoint. It's it's a really good movie. We talked about this a little bit with Windfall. I think anybody that is a fan of film should and could watch this movie. It's not... It's accessible to everybody. I think they went out of the, It's not too art factory, art house. I think it... It tried to go a little bit of that. There's some shots. There's some long-standing, like, there'll be somebody talking, and it will just show Buddy for, like, two minutes straight. Like, his face this as he's, like, This is way more accessible than, like, Roma. Like, Roma was another yes, black-and-white yes. movie that was also very recent. And Roma is truly... I, I feel like everything about Roma comes second to the camera work and the editing and the cinematography. Like... Roma set out to be an art house film. This did not. It it uses some of those elements to make its storytelling more interesting and rewarding, and I think it does a great job of that. But I think anyone could sit down and watch this movie and be totally fine. It's, you're not going to feel like 100%. you're being preached at by this movie. And to use kind of my genre as a talking point, you can you can show me you know uh, Half Blood Prince and in the Name of the Wind, right? And you can say, hey, these are two different fantasy you know magic involved novels that involved protagonists that are are roughly 15 years old and they're completely different in terms of how artistic one or the other is like you know name of the wind is like not accessible by every audience it's very heavy-handed it's the dialogue is very heavy it almost feels like you're reading lord of the rings whereas you know a half-blood prince is like Literally anybody that can read above a fifth grade grapple can read it and understand it and enjoy it, right? So Definitely. 100% agree. Do we want to get into the rest of the Oscars a little bit? Yeah, let's get into the rest of the Oscars. One thing that was brought to my attention before I even started getting into it was like, 
it is kind of weird that there's not a comedy section, right? Like comedy is such a huge thing, and like it's well, no, it, it no was it was a huge thing. There aren't really big budget comedies made anymore, and yeah, it'd be also. And this is not my opinion. This is definitely like how people in like art feel. Many people at that, especially like the Academy, feel that people that you know own the Criterion Collection, that kind of person, comedy is like the lowest form of art to them. To them, Mm -hmm. it's like horror movies. There's no horror movie category at the Oscars either. And that's because to make someone laugh or to make someone feel scared is cheap compared to the uh, emotions that they're trying to elicit from an audience with their work. Now, is that pretentious as shit? Absolutely. Are comedies just as important to film? Absolutely. They Um, are. And to storytelling. And I think that the Oscars totally misses that. Unfortunately, they don't make the money that they need them to anymore. And so we like, we lived through like the golden age, like the early two thousands into like mid, like early 2010s was the golden age of studios being able to put big money behind like step brothers and anchorman and wedding crashers and all those. And now like you're lucky if you get like maybe one movie like that a year, maybe, but we just don't get that anymore i mean i remember like when we were in high school you'd have five or six like pineapple express level movies that would come out every year that everyone would go see together and we just don't get that anymore i think the the market has just shifted all those dollars the model now is absolutely find a giant ip that can with can hold up like 90 be the tent pole for like 97 sequels put 150 to 500 million dollars into the budget and get a billion out and a comedy is never going to do that no comedy is ever going right. to get you a billion dollars and so they don't the idea of like a 50 million dollar movie that makes 150 million is just not the model anymore uh unfortunately which sucks because we've lost that like almost an entire genre of film which is sad because yeah. they so many of my favorite movies of my childhood are comedies well and i don't know what jed apatow is doing these days um other than uh, <laughs> tweeting dumb his. shit about the Oscars. <laughs> like, did you see his tweet? No. What do you say? He tweeted. I mean, we'll get to the Will Smith thing, but he tweeted about that. He was like, Chris Rock could have died. Like the, blood. Oh he, yeah. I, did I was just that. like, bro, shut the fuck up. Like the fact that I'm on your side and I'm still like, shut up. I should tell you that. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but, yeah. So yeah, ever, ever since Judd Apatow and Will McKay kind of moved on slash kind of fell out of, Vogue, like, God, it really has been slim pickings, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. I, so I'll say this to start our Oscar discussion. I said going in, I knew that Dune wasn't going to win like any of the big guys because like none of the performances were front and center enough that. to win. And it's not a, it doesn't have enough meat to win Best Picture. But I was hoping that it would win some technical awards. And man, I got my Did. greatest wish, dude. It won the most Oscars. It won six Oscars for this movie. So it ended Best up winning. sound. Best Sweet. production design, yep. best film editing, best cinematography, yep. uh, visual effects, best original score, best yep. visual effects. Yeah, it. So it congrats. cleaned up from I, a I technical that. fan base or from a technical filmmaking perspective, which it absolutely deserved. The only yes. other award that I thought that. I was like, oh, it could win this one was best costume design because there was so much work that went into like the really cool. Yeah, Corella though, which again, Cruella not mad, not ma- not mad fire, about dude. it at all. Not mad about that at all. Cruella had because Cruella took costume design to the it into a totally different space, right? It went into this like high fashion. It was the plot were, of the movie, exactly. Basically. So I was just like, I'm not even mad about that. So I'm so stoked that Dune not only 
made a lot of money and was critically acclaimed, but now has six Oscars behind it. That almost guarantees that we're going to get more, not only a, a, a Dune sequel, but more hopefully big budget sci-fi like Blade Runner 2049, like Dune. I love movies like that so much. I think they, that's such a, a, a not even, I'm not even going to call it a guilty pleasure. It's just like a, such a personal favorite subgenre film for me, especially after some high level disasters looking at you, John Carter, um, big budget sci-fi was like, big budget sci-fi was like way not okay to do for a while. Luckily we've seen movies like this that have brought back into vogue and across the board. I saw uh, almost everyone I talked to that saw Dune was like, I have not read Dune, but that shit was really cool. And that's all I really wanted out of it. It was like, did it look really awesome? Would you watch another one? All right, great. Like, that's all we need. So, very stoked on that. Um, would have liked to see Licorice Pizza win something because I thought it deserved something. But I understand it was just kind of like not the best at anything. It's just a really solid, fun romp. I was stoked that Jane Campion won Best Director for Power of the Dog. I thought that was very well deserved. And, and, and one thing I'll say about that is like, if you're more of the film guy, I'm more of the novelist, writing Correct. guy. And I will say that like Power of the Dog, I guess, I guess from my perspective is... I don't know the ins and outs of directing. I will openly admit that, but I'm just glad that like Power of the Dog won something major because, dude, that that movie deserved it. I I would say I'm just gonna go ahead and say this. Like, I think Power of the Dog was a better film than Belfast, and I you know, and That's I think it's tough. better than some of the movies that have been that have been represented in the Oscars. In sure, overall speaking, sure, yeah, no, Power of the Dog was incredible. It pretty much had what happened to it is exactly what happened to you know how you that meme used to come up every year like i can't believe leonardo dicaprio hasn't won a best actor oscar that's such bullshit well if you went back and looked like every year leo turned in a banger of a performance there was somebody that gave the performance of their lifetime that year and so it yep. it was never like that crazy that he didn't win in any of those specific years it was just that when you step back and looked at it big picture you're like it's crazy that someone that talented hasn't scored yet very similar story with power of the dog it's like that movie is like second best at 97 things on these lists it's just that in any one particular place you can be like well you know what like from this perspective, Coda was, ma- you know, and again, haven't seen Coda because I'm a cultureless yeah, creep. We need, we need to watch it. We're assholes for making a podcast and not having. I was interested to hear what your take, and I know picture. we'll get we'll get more into uh, the pre the what happened before he got this award. But I know you were like very specifically like, I really hope Will Smith does not get the best actor knob for or best no, actor I for said it, so, and I and I probably need to go back and listen to what I said. But my thought process was, I thought King Richard was ass as a movie. But Will Smith did a good oh, okay. job. Okay, right? gotcha. And yeah, so yeah. my and, and look, if I'm wrong, some slide in my DMs. And again, I might have revisionist history in my mind, but like my thought process was, hey, Will Smith did his job, kind of like how he did in like Seven Pounds or Pursuit of Happiness. Pursuit of like, Happiness. Yep. I I did not walk away being like that was the best movie of all time, but like Will Smith did a good job, right? Will Smith has played uh, bridesmaid a lot. He has not been bride a lot. So and. I look at the I look at the the, the nominations for um, best actor, and I don't know who could have beat Will Smith. Is is kind of my my take. I, I, yeah, I'm ben, Benedict Cumberbatch right was my my the one that, that was kind of my favorite in the clubhouse since I had not seen King Richard. He was incredible in Power I didn't, of the Dog. I didn't I didn't watch Denzel in Tragedy of Macbeth. I've not seen Tragedy of Macbeth, but. Denzel is by far the best actor on that list of of uh, nominations. I did not see 
being the Ricardos from Javier Bourdain, who's also good. I've watched more of Tick, Tick, Boom than just a clip where they're like singing that song that <laughs> yeah, I've tried yeah, to yeah. sing on this podcast. Yeah. But Andrew Garfield, I think, is like highly underrated. He's I, a great I actor. I love Andrew Garfield. He's a great actor. He's been um, in some great movies, too. I mean, he was incredible in The Social Network. He really was. He didn't get enough credit for that for whatever reason, but agreed. I thought Andrew Garfield could have won best best actor from all of the things that I had seen on that. From everything I've, I've heard from people that are in the know, like Will Smith was 99% guaranteed to win that award. Which makes so the whole evening not, that much weirder. Like that makes the entire incident that. Much yeah. Stranger. Yeah. So Will Smith let's, uh, Let's yeah. get into it. I mean, so, I've wanted to talk about this with someone for so long, I feel like, but it's been days. So I feel like everybody's consumed all they need to know about it. But to me, I feel like this is bigger than just this one incident that people should move on from. I think this is a big deal, and I want to hear your yeah, take on I, it because you're I've more heard, of a— I've heard so many different people's takes on this. Close personal friends of mine who are who are on Will Smith's side in this situation, which I, I at first was very shocked by. But to, to set the scene for anyone who is truly living under a rock and didn't hear this story, at the Academy Awards, Chris Rock was selected to present an award. He got up there and does what Chris Rock does. He's a comedian. He kind of roasts some people. He made uh, what I think most people at the time and in the moment considered to be a fairly lighthearted joke, maybe a little mean, about Jada Jada Pinkett Smith's haircut. She has shaved her head. We found out kind of later that that was in response to her developing uh, alopecia, so she's been going bald, and so she shaved her head. Chris Rock made a joke being like, I love the haircut. You know, I didn't know they were making a sequel to G.I. Jane. Yeah, that was I can't joke. wait for G.I. Jane 2, yeah. basically. Which refers to Demi Moore's character in G.I. Jane, where she shaved her head as part right. of being in the army. of course. Will Smith proceeded to get up from his seat in the front row, walk up on stage. Chris Rock clearly is kind of like, uh-oh, like, what's going on here? Uh, doesn't know what's happening. Will Smith slapped him, open hand slapped him across the face, returned to his seat, and then... When Chris Rock was like, hey, man, like that was pretty, pretty crazy. Will Smith screamed at the top of his lungs multiple times. Keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth in like the angriest way possible. Um, like 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 glassy eyed about to cry. Exactly. Like- uh, during commercial break, like Denzel Washington and Bradley Cooper came over and they kind of like talked him down. He then won the best actor uh, Oscar, which should be like the pinnacle of your career. And he gave what I would consider to be like a fairly like rambling speech that was pretty crazy given what it all just occurred. And it became kind of the talk of the evening. This has devolved into this kind of like discussion that centers around like, well, you can't talk about someone's wife. Did or did not Chris know about the alopecia situation? A whole bunch of things. My my dad was texting me while it happened. And my dad, who is, a, you know, the son of Italian immigrants and would definitely not sit well with someone insulting my mom in front of him, is also taught me very early on that, like, violence in public is a sign of weakness. Like, that is not where yep. violence is carried out. It is... Agreed. And, and I'll, I'll say this, like... My father repeated the line from The Godfather to me since the time I was born, which is like, never let anyone outside God, of the family so ever Italian. know what you're thinking. <laughs> it is, so it is absurd. Italian. But he, he always told me, like, never let anyone outside of the family know what you're thinking. Like, that is 
a, a very much an Italian thing that like to to publicly display your disapproval, to publicly let people know that you're emotional about something. Those are signs of weakness in a man, those kind of things. So my dad's take was, okay, you go to the after party and you beat Chris Rock's ass there if you need to beat his ass. Or you talk to or him. Or just like whatever. with him, yeah. Other thing, if Will Smith knows he's going to win the Oscar, which by all accounts, it sounds like he did know that, like that it was like this very well understood thing that he was most likely going to win. If Will Smith gets up there at the mic for his acceptance and goes, I want to dedicate this award to my beautiful wife, who is so incredibly strong and beautiful, you know, Chris, you should never punch down as a comedian. The next day, everyone is just like, oh my God, Will Smith is the greatest husband in the world. He stood up for his woman. Fuck Chris Rock. The whole nine yards. He absolutely wins the whole fucking thing if he does that. And instead, he came out looking like a complete lunatic, especially in the context of we've spent the last year enduring these very public incidents where Jada Pinkett Smith, like, hauls will onto tv on a show that will finances where she's like okay i want to tell you how i banged one of our kids friends who's a rapper i got entangled with him bizarre now i'll say that like people that i i am friends with have told me that like no like chris learned a lesson that you don't talk about someone's wife that like you shouldn't go there with people if you're not prepared to accept the consequences blah 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 i'll just say this i saw a meme i think put it well it showed a picture of of uh, The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson saying the G.I. Jane joke, and then it cut to Will Smith, and he's just laughing, pointing at there like, oh, that's so funny, and I think that's fucking true. I think that if anyone that Will Smith thought would hit him back had been up there, Will Smith would not have been Billy Badass getting up there to fucking hit Dude, and no talk kidding. shit. So, no kidding. it came across to me as just like the, the ravings of a madman. It was sad, man. It should have been the pinnacle of his entire life's work, and instead he's going to be remembered as the night he made a fool of himself. That sucks. You brought up a good point that I want to start with with my thoughts, What, which was, you know, punching down versus, like, would would he have done this if The Rock was up there? And I'll make a few points about that. I listened to Dana Carvey and David Spade. David, David Spade. Spade. Dana Carvey and David Spade sat there and said, like, dude, as two guys that were 90 pounds soaking wet as sophomores in high school, that brought back a lot of memories to me of being bullied where, like, some guy's going to hit you and then walk away as a six foot three guy that Will Smith is. And as a five ten guy that Chris Rock is like, you're going to get hit and then you're going to walk away knowing he's not going to do shit. So then I think there's that perspective. I think Joe Rogan, your boy, uh, <laughs> my absolute uh, idol in life. I, I'm on an ivermectin IV as we speak because of Joe Rogan. Your, Continue. Your boy, your, your former boy anyways. Uh, brought, I thought he brought up a really good point, which was when you're going to hit somebody, it's one thing to hit somebody and then to like stand your ground and wait there for the impending fight. It's another thing to slap somebody open-handed and then walk away with your back turned knowing they can't do shit because they are presenting an award right and they're a comedian like and and to sit back down dynamic and to sit back down knowing that because of your fame your status your money they're not gonna kick you out like if i was in the lobby at the oscars as someone's guest and i punched a waiter i would be in la county jail that night like unequivocally not even close wouldn't be a question will smith did not even expect to be disciplined around that incident like to him he was the victim in the assault that he did so, and that's a whole separate thing. And by the way, I guess we should acknowledge that at this point that we're recording this podcast, the Academy Award has come out and said that they tried to kick out Will Smith. 
but that he refused. But then that's also been like Will Smith's camp has said that that's not true. So there's like a myriad of issues with Academy Award security. Apparently, like we don't even go into that. I guess, but that's a yeah. Whole wh- other what would what would have happened if Will Smith had like got on top of Chris Rock and started beating him to death? Would they have just been like, well, he won the Best Actor and he was in Men in Black, so? Or if like I was I was talking about this with a buddy. Like, what if Chris Rock fell? You and I have both been in uh, self-defense class and stuff. Like, you know how easy it is to, like, your head gets cocked, you lose blood oxygen in your brain for a split second, and you can fall. Even if the hit isn't that hard, your yeah. head cocks quickly. You just hit the button. You just you fall. Lights out. You yeah. lose your equilibrium and you fall back. What if Chris Rock hit the floor? Does that change the situation at all? You know, it shouldn't, but it does. You know, it totally changes the situation. I, well, I would dude, add there's, that... There's a whole bunch of weird, like, what if it's a woman doesn't doing the joke? Is Jada going to walk up there and hit her? Is, is Will going to walk up there and threaten to hit a woman? What if it was... Chris Rock doing the joke and a white guy got up there and punched Chris Rock. What if it was a white comedian doing the joke and Will Smith got up yeah. there? And, you know what I mean? Just like the the dynamics of the situation were so interesting because it's two titanic names in black entertainment. Like two of the, right. the top five most successful black entertainers of the last 20 years who are now in this physical confrontation over. I think that what, what was such a weird dissonance factor to me was that like if you just saw the response, if you just saw the slap, and then you just saw the joke there'd be so little to tell you that like these two events were related like the joke and the response seem so like out of balance with one another like the the slap and the screaming are the response to like chris rockets up there and makes a joke about how he had sex with your wife like he said something right. or or with your children or like something so out of bounds that it was just like i cannot sit here i saw red I was going to kill this guy. On the other hand, the the joke is seemingly like out of all the jokes you could have told about this couple who has very publicly kind of like bragged about their infidelity issues and masculinity issues. And like Will has cried on national TV about his wife cheating on him with like 25 year old SoundCloud rappers. Like out of all the jokes that could have been made that would have set him over the edge, that was the one. Does Will break his phone 40 times a day reading Twitter? Because I've seen way meaner shit said about Jada and Will, like just in the normal run of the Internet. Like it's it's very strange. Yeah, I'll kind of just pile on a little bit to what you said a second ago about like the different identities of people that could have told the joke and respond to the joke. Like you, you made the point about like, what does it look like if there are different demographics in the situation for sure i i won't i won't add my own input but i will say that i've listened to dudes that i respect that run i would say podcasts that are both african-american and they've said like dude this is a bad look like you get their their opinion is like how does it look when you have like an african-american attacking another african-american male like on national television and nobody like people view that as like oh just let them duke it out that's what they do whereas like for sure. Dude, if he punched Steve Martin in the face... If Steve Martin or, and Robert Redford got into a fight, it would have been, like, all hands on deck trying to separate them. Like, we can't believe these two titans of oh, our no space. Kidding. Or, yeah, yeah, or, well, like, or, dude, imagine if Will Smith slapped, uh, I mean, age-wise, more of a contemporary, but, like, if Will Smith hit Jason Sudeikis, yeah. Will Smith would have 100% gotten arrested, like, in my opinion. Ag- agreed. Well, and, and I've also heard the perspective that, like... So the the least uh, and this is coming from one of my my very close friends who who is black and he made the point that like in the hierarchy of like 
how much like the media and society cares about people, black women are often at the bottom, right? Like, yes, if yes, if, agreed. If white men are at the top, black women are treated the worst because they are even like looked down upon by other black men. And so, for from his perspective, he was bringing up the point that like black women's hair is such a very specific racial identity trope and like has so much history and baggage Mm -hmm. around it. So for a black man to attack a black woman about her hair in such a public fashion was already kind of out of bounds. And then for this like black on black crime incident to occur, just made it 10 times worse. Again, I don't know if Chris Rock knew about the alopecia thing. I really don't think he did, especially because I've seen footage after the fact that has Jada Pinkett being like, I love my bald head. I chose to go this route. I don't care what anyone thinks. This looks great on me. And I I don't disagree. I think she looks totally fine. Like I don't it's Agreed. not like she Agreed. looks like shit. Like it's not like everyone was she looks like great. it's not like everyone was like, hey, don't bring up her hair because it's clearly looks horrible. Everyone was like, that's what Jada Pinkett looks like. She's hot as shit. Like that's right. fine. So I feel like he totally viewed it as here's this. Fair objectively game. hot woman who has a different haircut. I'll make a comment on the haircut because that's like the the least damaging thing, and it turned dude, out to all be the this jokes huge before thing. that were like super inbounds, like being like, "Oh, Javier Bourdain, you better not win an award because you're, you know, you're you're out of space for awards or whatever." Uber yeah. successful wife is gonna be bad, like, yeah, obviously that's not the case, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, hundred percent agreed. Like, and as every comedian in the world has pointed out by now, like. It sets a horrible precedent for, like, a comedian. Like, let's put this in context for a second. Like, Will Smith has probably been to 30 to 100 award shows in his 30-year career. I think that's safe at to least, say. At least. At least. He's, yeah. prob- he's probably been to invited to the Grammys. He's probably been invited to the Emmys. He's probably been invited to other international awards. Like, Will Smith knows how this is played. And he knows that award presenters are up there to present awards, but also present a few jokes that are supposed to be roasts especially when a comedian is doing it and they will target people that are in the front rows and people that are up for awards like this is part of the game if you are up for awards if you're in the front row and a comedian is presenting you are going to get roasted and if you have put your personal life on a pedestal for the whole world to talk about for the last two to five years you're probably a prime target to get roasted but but again, so he did. Him. He didn't even use the material that you would even think is like one the most right. obvious and two the most damaging. So I was just again, it just goes back to that dissonance thing. Right. It's so, just like so, I don't so, get so, it. So just saying that, like, okay, even if he would have gone there, quote unquote, and he had made a joke about, hey, Jada Pickett Smith has been banging SoundCloud rappers, like you said, like as we talked about before we started recording, as Ricky Gervais pointed out. He wouldn't have made fun of the hair. He made fun of his her multiple boyfriends, right? right? That are half your age. For sure. If Chris Rock had made a joke about that, I mean, I think half of us would still think that that was in bounds in terms Agreed. of what the Smiths have provided for us. It's that we didn't find out about that whole situation by some like paparazzi photographer sneaking into a military bunker in the middle of the night. You guys hosted your own syndicated television show where you walked through it for attention. You wanted, I mean, the only reason you'd put something out there like that is for content. You wanted content. You wanted the, you wanted something by doing it publicly and not in a therapist's office. So like you got it, like that's going to be in this public sphere, the public conversation. Chris did you the professional service of 
and respect of not using that, which you handed to the whole world on a silver platter, and instead mention something that is... I mean, dude, if you go to any open mic in the world and you are sitting anywhere near the front, dude, you will get made fun of. Like, if we had... If I take Cassie to a comedy show tomorrow and she's got a baby bump and the guy makes a joke about her being fat, neither of us are going to storm the stage and try to attack the guy. That's stupid. Like, yeah, we volunteered for this situation. It's very strange, man. I don't know. And I don't know where he goes from here. And I'll say this. Let me just go ahead and give us a special stupidity award for the people I have seen saying that this was staged and that Will Smith was, like, bribed to do this. If Will Smith loses a single movie, if Bad Boys 5 doesn't get made because of this incident, it's already out of, totally out of the realm of whatever he could be paid to do this. Like, we're talking about a man that gets 10 to $20 million a film. There is no amount of money you could pay him to ruin his entire personal life for what will be years. And he did that. Like, and again, there was just so many alternate routes. Even if you're that mad, if you're that mad, which I don't understand being, but let's default to hypothetically you're that pissed. There are so many ways to handle this where you can come out the winner or at least not as big a loser. And you picked the only, you picked the only route by which the person you're so mad at becomes like a national hero, sells out every stand-up show for the next six months, and everyone thinks you're an idiot. It's bizarre. It's a bizarre choice, especially for someone who I have to imagine has lived in the public spotlight for so long that he has taken a razzing. Like, there has to be people in the world who have been like, Hey, getting jiggy with it. You're such a fucking douchebag. You know what I mean? Like, that's just being famous. Like, I remember the Matt Damon story he always tells about. He was at dinner. A paparazzi guy came up to his table and he said, Hey, Matt, I heard you took your mom to the Oscars. And Matt said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I heard she looked like a whore. And the guy just wanted Matt to, like, get a rise out of Matt so that he could have a story or, like, sue the guy. That is the reality that famous people live with. There's no way Will Smith being, like, a Scientologist, public face of open relationships has not taken public abuse on the street in a hundred different places. How and why would you choose the most public, most worst situation 10 minutes before you're about to like achieve your greatest life goal, probably to wild the fuck out and make an idiot of yourself. It is, it will never make sense. It will never make sense. Maybe. And Webb brought up a good point. Maybe he was just hammered drunk and maybe that, accounts for some of it but it's not i mean i'll just i'll just say this dude like and a guy that has had 30 years in the spotlight of good work both professionally like from a like from a technical standpoint and also from like being a good role model avoiding cuss words in his you know music and of however course. corny you think that is this dude has been a good role model he's never he's, he's, he's always he's, been a guy that could be on the weeds box like he's never had a situation where like nike wouldn't want him to like be in a thousand percent and this dude is in the biggest night of his life professionally winning an award winning his first and probably only you know best leading man because he's not a great actor he's not denzel he's not leo let's be honest for sure for him to upend all of that for a relatively mild joke that doesn't even hit on the true nerves of all of the things that people could be making fun of it just yeah, it, it it doesn't make financial sense. It doesn't make sense from a social standpoint. So well, and, and it made it's your wife. Made it, it made your if your if your whole thing was I'm here to defend my wife. Keep my wife's fucking name out of your mouth. It made your wife look a thousand times worse, ten thousand times worse. Like 100%. the shit I've seen her uh, said about her in the last three days because of how. She, her body language was, her reaction to the situation. It, it basically just confirmed for everyone 
that she is this like emotionally yeah, manipulative, horrible person. I do not know what the end game was. It's crazy. I guess in some small way, it brings me like comfort to know that like even the you know these people that have like achieved so much are that human that they can fuck up that bad because like man i i cannot even see myself doing that and i am very guilty of being overly emotional and i don't want this to become like crazy political but i guess i'm going to tip my toes in this but like dude there's there has been seemingly over the last i'm just going to go ahead and be conservative but like the last 10 years that there is this idea that like if you disagree with somebody or if somebody has offended you, that, like, physical violence is okay, if not warranted, if not necessary, right? And I won't get into, like, all of the different well, and movements. Look, and look, if you're if you're a Nazi, and you're out on the street, and you're yelling that you're going to fucking gas the Jews, and you get punched in the face, I have less sympathy for you than many I think people. less sympathy is a good way to put it. Less sympathy is a good way to put it. But I do think that, like, dude, at a certain point, you've got to draw a line in the sand and be... Because here's the thing. I'll say this. If somebody's committing violence against you, defending yourself is okay, right? Violence on violence, that's one thing. Or but even, ad- or even getting- advocating violence. Like, if someone is sitting there being like, we need to fucking go into that building and kill everyone that looks like X, then sure, like, I can understand how your reaction to that would be visceral and emotional enough to, to go there. But... Sure, the, like, I think what you're getting at is a get yes that like the simple idea that you and I have different ideas or or different opinions cannot be enough to warrant physical altercation. Like if you allow society to get there, rule of law goes out the window, and we fa- we fail as a civilization. Like that's where it ends. I, I just I I just feel like in general, once you start adding any any layer of subjectivity to violence is necessary. Any layer of subjectivity then you start to tread into some dangerous waters. Like, we talked about Ricky Gervais earlier. If Ricky Gervais came up there and spent two and a half minutes berating Jada Pickett and Will Smith's open marriage, right? I think that you and I would have been more likely to have been like, dude, he crossed the line, right? As would a probably a very large portion of society. But there are still some people that are going to say, well, no, that still wasn't crossing the line, right? But who are we to say, right? Like, Okay, but in that, we in, in that, that situation, if you heard, instead of the, how Will played it, if you had heard, like, Ricky Gervais goes up there, he does two and a half minutes on how Jada fucks everyone, you know, under the sun. And then you hear that at the after party, Will Smith walked up and got in Ricky's face, they shoved each other, and Will cold cocked Ricky Gervais to the floor. Would you view that differently than how you viewed the Chris Rock-Will Smith interaction? Because I think I would. I think I would view that. as I would because like, because of the got be... in the face. Like if you if you if I heard that they had a uh, verbal altercation beforehand, which isn't, and again, I don't. I still don't think that I'm. I think I'm by saying that I'm living in a moral gray area. Like I think that anytime you start advocating any any layer of violence be, between verbal words, like I think that you start entering a moral gray area. Like to me, I think the cleanest like way you can stay above reproach is like, dude, short of violence and like a uh, threat of violence like what you said mm-hmm. i think all of that is like you just you keep it at words and it's not easy it's not no i'm not saying it's easy but i'm saying like you can't cold cock somebody for I, and by I, the way he did cold cock him yeah dude chris rock had his hands at his hips he was laughing he had his hands behind his back so i think we're in agreement that will smith was 99 percent in the wrong chris rock was maybe one percent or i, I don't even know if i go one than, I, I was gonna say like yeah i, I, that's I was 100 in the wrong like 
Again, Chris or, or Rock Jada didn't... Pinkett Smith was partially in the wrong. Yeah, like, and even that's, I would that's say the, Jada Pinkett that's where was the, more in the wrong. That's where the mystery comes in for me. Is like we we've all seen the clip of like the joke is told, Will is laughing, and then suddenly Will's up on stage. Like, was Will laughing? As in like. Okay, yeah, you think that's funny, huh? You got jokes, huh? Or was Will laughing until he looked over at Jada and Jada was like, Will, if you don't get up there, or, you know, Tupac would never have let anyone say that about me kind of thing. If that second scenario, the Will is kind of going to roll with it, like maybe he doesn't like it, but he's going to roll with it, he doesn't give that much of a shit, and then the interjection of Jada caused the violence, then I almost hate her more than Will Smith. Like, I'm not going to let Will off the hook because you, you took the actions, you know, you did the violence. But, like, sure. yeah, to, I like, agree. be the person that, like, de- like ordered the violence, like, yeah. I think agreed on all points, and I, and I, I will add as kind of a cherry on top that, like, as much as I'm pissed at Will Smith, as much as I'm pissed at Jada Pekin, like, you know, my hopes for this situation is that everybody can move on. I don't like Will Smith has had a 30 year career of doing the right thing. I, I, I truly think that by open handing, slapping somebody as horrible as it was, as bad of a precedent as it sets, I hope that he does not get quote unquote canceled for it. I don't think he will. Yeah. I hope no. that he's He'll able to fine. move on. He's going to be fine. He'll be fine. I just, I can't emphasize enough. Like I can, I, I hate what he did. I, I hope people realize how horrible it was. It's obviously going to be a footnote in his amazing career, but I hope that it doesn't ruin it, right? Yeah, and I mean, dude, I you know this is not the time nor the place to have the discussion about cancel culture. I think ultimately peop- many people, especially people in Will Smith's situation, are in far too powerful position to get canceled like that you arrive yeah. at a place where that just doesn't exist for you like if you or i do something stupid and gets caught on tape it could very well ruin our life once you're truly wealthy and powerful even the law doesn't really apply to you anymore you you don't even go to jail for normal shit so like yes he will have to uh answer questions about this which will be annoying and uh i'm sure the next time he signs to do a big budget movie the the director will be like are you gonna hit anyone or something, but ultimately, yeah, this will be a footnote. If this is an isolated event and not the beginning of a pattern of behavior, then he's going to be just fine. So, and and again, I I don't want to be I don't want to take the Amy Schumer road and say that like this was traumatizing or Bro, it was like that a, tweet. It was a, big, it was, a was insane. Yeah. To or, especially or the fact that. It began with, not only did Amy Schumer claim that it was traumatizing and triggering, but it began with, the best way to get over it is to go watch my show on Hulu, which just makes uh, yeah, it, I think a it was, thousand I, I think it was times a little bit tongue-in-cheek, hopefully. Which, but that's just a but. thousand times worse to be like, because it was shitty. Like, it is a bad situation. So, like, it's not so funny that you can, like, use it for leverage. It's not like, you right. know... Uh, I don't know. It'd be like, it's like people that are like, it, it, it is in the same vein as the people that we were making fun of that were like, guys, I can't help but feel such horrible, so feel so horrible for the people of Ukraine. My only fans will be free for the next six hours as an act of solidarity with the people of Ukraine. You're just like, shut the fuck up, lady. Like, Yeah, it's like, you know, and like, I'm not going to take the Judd Apatow route either and be like, he could have killed him. But I will add that like, dude, we talked about like, that hit from a six foot three guy hitting you unexpected with your hands to your side. Like if his head would have turned slightly harder, like Tris Rock at minimum could have lost his equilibrium and fallen to the ground. Dude, you and I have known and a again, much smaller, less powerful man that killed a person at Cheesecake Factory in much the same way. So allegedly, it can allegedly. happen. 
it, it's on allegedly. video, but it is allegedly. It is absolutely yeah. on video, but it, it is legally is allegedly. allegedly, but it is also on video, and the guy <laughs> did actually die. He did die. Um, it was but, the guy. Yes, to that. But like, yeah, I mean, I guess my point is like, dude, if Chris Rock gets cold, like if he gets cold cock, which he did, and he falls to the ground and he's there for a minute and people have to attend to him medically that like, dude, Will Smith is really lucky that didn't happen. Oh he's yeah. Really lucky. Cause, cause you talk about like, I, I agree with you that he, he's not, he's powerful enough to like not let this cancel him. But like if Chris Rock faints and is like, needs medical attention and like has to get pulled off the stage. Which, that that might be cancelable. Which cancelable. okay, which in like in which case, like if Chris Rock if if Chris Rock is knocked unconscious in public by someone, Will Smith should get in trouble. Like <laughs> that yes. he should be treated like a normal human being, which he is. Like I'm I'm glad he was in Wild Wild West. That's that's very cool and the Fresh Prince is awesome, but Hey, so is so is Kenneth B, by the way. Absolutely. Shout outs. Kenny B. So can't say uh, his name. Dude, all so all in all, name. all in all, uh a, a, an eventful Oscar night and uh, gave us a whole list of new movies to watch. We'll have to watch Coda. We do. I don't know if we'll do an episode on it. I guess we'll have to watch it individually and see if it's worth watching, you know, doing a full episode on For that. sure. For sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I know coming up next, we've got uh, Clara and the Sun, which I know our fans are excited for us to get back to a, 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 a novel, novel. novel. Finally. They, I don't know if they yes, believe that we read. So this will be uh, a real a real gotcha Finally. episode. Later this, I mean, we've got we've got a full docket of things coming up. We've got our our uh, coming up in here about a month. We've got our best villains podcast. Um, we'll have to do that here Hell with yeah. Weber here pretty soon. But dude, I'm excited for the future. We've got we've got a few novels coming down. We've got a few specials coming down. We're gonna kick back up our our interviews here pretty soon, which I know people have been asking about. And then our YouTube channel will be coming back once I get my 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 video feed figured out. So Hell yeah, man! Let's do stuff. it. All right, well, as always, um, if you enjoyed what you heard, please like and subscribe and, and recommend to friends. We greatly appreciate that. Um, as always, this is Novel Discourse, and I'm Sam. I'm Andy. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.